Well, good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, where we have been studying for some time, actually not that long, but we're in chapter 8 this evening. We're just going to look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, there are some very interesting parts of the story, but there's also a parallel, which we'll get a little into toward the end of our study, where there are sort of symbols and analogies that always point to Jesus. All of the scripture, whether it's in theme or reference, point to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and how he rose from the dead. We're, we're always looking at that. Every theme, every theme in the Bible points to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so that will happen as well. But for now, let's remember where we are in the account. In this section, we're going to see that this is happening after Haman was put to death. He was hung on the gallows. And now Mordecai and Esther are left with the problem of how do we undo what Haman did before he died. He had issued an edict that said on a certain day, all of the Jews were to be put to death and plundered by their enemies. And so this is still months away now, but still, but still, this is a problem that has to be solved. So even though Haman's dead, the edict, the decree lives on. And so as we look at the scripture, let's see that, and keep this in the back of your mind, that there was a decree that demanded death of God's people. And yet there was a way to life. And as we think about our own salvation, there is a decree that demands death. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And so you'll see when we get to the end of this account, all of these symbols, they point to what Jesus did for us to give us new life. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word your word. We pray that as we study the word, our children would be blessed in their time together in fellowship next door, that they would receive as well. We pray that this evening we would receive from your word in a way that changes our hearts and makes them more like you. That's really what we desire more than anything else, to be more like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther's about to appeal to Xerxes the king to deliver the Jews from their enemies because they're still not delivered from their enemies at this point. And we're going to see that the king is going to give Esther and Mordecai the authority to deliver the Jews throughout Persia. But it begins in verse 1. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. That same day, that's the same day that Haman was put to death, that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him, that is Mordecai, over Haman's estate. So the good news is Haman's dead. The good news is that Esther is blessed with the estate. All of that vast wealth that Haman bragged about has now gone to Esther, who we'll see in turn turns it over to Mordecai. Xerxes gave that estate, all of the, the wealth that Haman bragged about it, everything he bragged about to Esther, one of the people that he was really trying to kill because she's a Jew, even though he didn't know that. But he gave Haman's position to Mordecai. Mordecai got the signet ring. He received the authority that Haman had as one of the chief princes in the realm, in the empire. 
So all that Haman had is now given to two Jewish people. Esther the queen receives his wealth. Mordecai receives his position. And all of this happened on that same day Haman was hanged. Now Mordecai finally appears before Xerxes after Esther finally told him how he was related to her. The reason that Xerxes didn't know, the reason was because she didn't reveal, she hadn't revealed her nationality until recently, until that day, or her family background to anyone at the king's palace. And the reason for that was Mordecai had actually forbidden her from doing so, from letting anyone know she was a Jew or that she was even related to Mordecai. She had obeyed him. She had hid her identity as a Jew until recently and Mordecai's adopted daughter. So now the truth is out. Now, whether it was right for them to conceal the truth or not is not the point. Now Xerxes knows the truth. He knows all of the truth. And Xerxes gave to Mordecai that signet ring, the ring by which you could stamp or seal documents and enforce edicts in the name of the king. Remember, Haman had been given this seat of honor going back to chapter 3, higher than all of the other nobles in the Persian court. And now Mordecai has that position, essentially as prime minister. Haman had given full authority to issue edicts in the name of King Xerxes, and now Mordecai had that same authority. But remember that the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked or repealed. So they can't just repeal the issue or the the edict, the decree that Haman had sent out. So that's one of the things they have to solve, and we'll see how they go about that in this chapter. And Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's wealthy estate. We see that in the latter part of verse 2, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So now Mordecai, for all intents and purposes, has not only the position but the wealth of Haman, who tried to kill him and all of his people. And so God has certainly worked on behalf of his people in responding to their prayers and their fasting. God has worked all things together for their good. And now, just as Esther had pleaded with the king in the previous chapter to save her people, she again pleads with Xerxes to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. As I said, that was still in force. And so we read in verses 3 through 8, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. And if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and issued, or excuse me, and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So there you have it. In our government, in our 
under our Constitution, there are times under certain circumstances where laws can be repealed. We were fortunate enough to see, it wasn't really a law that was repealed, it was really a court decision, a ruling that was repealed concerning Roe versus Wade. But there are times when laws are repealed, even the highest laws of the land, like the Constitution. There are amendments to the Constitution that can be revoked, can be repealed, and it's happened. It takes a lot of people agreeing on that point, but that's the case under our government. Under the Medes and Persians, they said, you enforce a law, that law cannot be revoked, it cannot be repealed. So they're going to have to overrule, not revoke, but overrule that edict of Haman in order to preserve the life of the Jewish people. And we'll see how that plays out. But for now, let's look back over what we just read. We know that Haman had issued an edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia. We know that Esther had requested Xerxes spare her and her people from Haman's edict in chapter 7. So what is this all about? Well, Esther is now falling at Xerxes' feet. She's weeping. She's begging him to intervene on behalf of her people. And keep in mind that you really couldn't do this. The law didn't allow you to just kind of throw yourself before the king. But she did it anyway. She again was trusting God that Xerxes would pardon her by extending the golden scepter to spare her life. If he didn't pardon her by doing that, like we've seen in the past, she could have been put to death for this violation of protocol. You couldn't make a request to the king unannounced or uninvited. And so now she does the same thing she had done before. She's willing to break Persian law and appear before Xerxes without being summoned. Now, Persian law, as we know, condemned anyone approaching the king in the inner court uninvited to death, but she was once again willing. Like she said, if I perish, I perish. She's once again willing, because if she doesn't intervene or intercede on behalf of her people, she's going to perish anyway, or at least there's a good chance many of her people will. So we know in verse 4 that Xerxes was very pleased to see her. He immediately extended the golden scepter to spare her life. So now we know she's been spared. There's, There's no issue there, but Her first request had been terrifying when she thought about appearing before King Xerxes unannounced. But notice that her second request was much less dramatic. And that's because she has a familiarity with appearing before the king. She's confident that the king will pardon her because she knows she has the king's favor. Now, I want to point that out because approaching God's throne the very first time is a scary proposition whether it be in prayer or coming to an altar call or coming forward and giving your life to Jesus Christ. That first time, believe it or not, I think most of us would agree, it can be pretty terrifying. Because you're not familiar with God's presence. You don't feel comfortable there. You barely feel invited. But when you find out and figure out that you are invited and that you can come before God's throne boldly with confidence, you do it, but you're sort of tentative. But as you spend more time in the presence of God, you become more familiar, more comfortable in God's presence, knowing that he welcomes you into his presence. And the same is true for Esther. She wasn't all that concerned that she would be put to death by Xerxes because she was comfortable in his presence. I pray that you approach God's throne so frequently and so often that you, as the scripture says, do come before his throne boldly with confidence and feel comfortable, not irreverent, but comfortable in his presence. If not for the golden scepter, which we've talked about in the past, which is a symbol of Jesus, a type of Jesus, we would be rejected 
and sentenced to death. If God didn't extend his pardon through Jesus Christ, who is the scepter of Judah, we would also find ourselves cast out of the presence of God for all eternity. So those who appear before God's throne in eternity without Jesus do not receive the pardon through the scepter of Judah. The golden scepter represents that. Jesus, the scepter of Judah. So you don't want to appear before God the Father apart from God the Son. Remember, in him we'll be in no way cast out, but apart from him, well, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we are cast out. So that's why salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen? That's a picture of that. Well, Esther requested that Xerxes issue an order to overrule the edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia. Now, I want to break down in verse 5. I want to break down how she approaches the king, the things she says. Because you'll notice that her request of Xerxes was completely conditional to his authority. And when you make a request before God, it isn't what you want. It's as Jesus prayed in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think one of the problems we have in the modern church is we think that we can come before the throne of God. Yes, we can come there with confidence, boldly, but we think we can come before the throne of God and dictate to God what's best for us. Well, I want that. And because I want that, I'm going to claim that. You know, that word claim isn't used so much anymore. But when I first became a Christian in the 80s, there was this movement. It was called Name It and Claim It. It was very, very popular. Some people called it Blab It and Grab It. But the Name It and Claim It movement had everything to do with saying, well, I want, therefore give it to me. That sounds like a toddler. Toddlers haven't learned the niceties of, you know, saying please and thank you necessarily. Some do, but most don't. I want it. And sometimes they don't even ask. They just sort of grab it and take it and scream when you try to take it away from them. Well, that is not the way we approach the throne of grace. You know, one of the things I'm concerned about, yes, we can come before God boldly with confidence in our time of need for help and in our, in, in our time of need. But we approach God's throne in humility, surrendering our hearts, acknowledging the only reason we can come before his throne is because of the scepter of Judah, Jesus Christ. The only reason we have any place before God's throne is because of Jesus. So for us to come to God and ask for things apart from the will of God in Jesus Christ really is irreverence. It's boldness that's brashness. It's, it's, not, it's sinful. It's not according to God's will. So I want you to notice, I'm going to read it again, and I want to break down. There are four things that I noticed in this verse, in verse 5, that help me to think about how I approach God's throne of grace. In verse 5, back in uh, chapter 8, she says, If it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor or grace and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches that Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. So she gets to her request. But I used to program. I do a little bit still. And one of the first things you learn when you're programming is what's called a conditional statement. It's if, then, sometimes if, then, else. 
So if this is true, then that else, this is true. And binary logic, which is a combination of, you know, yeses and nos, is, is how all computers, all technology works. On, off, yes, no. One, zero. And if you know that, you know this. A conditional statement is what controls the flow of logic. So, when we come before God, there's always this conditional aspect to our requests. And there are four that are mentioned here, and one is this, if it pleases the king. I really think when you pray, you should probably start at least with the attitude, if not the very words, if it pleases you, Lord. If it pleases the king, would you really want anything from God that doesn't please him? No, not if you love God, not if you want to be blessed. So what she's doing when she says, if it pleases the king, the first thing she does with this request is surrender her will to him, to the king. And when we come before the throne of God, we need to surrender our will to him. That is the very first thing you and I need to do. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, not so much the words, but the form right up front. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's that idea. Does it please the king? Is this according to your will? Is this something that you want? I'm going to surrender to your will, heavenly Father. And then she does something else, and this is so important as well. She says, if, notice another if statement, if he regards me with favor or grace. If he regards me with favor. Now, what you're saying there, and what she's saying before the king is, I'm humbling myself, Esther would say. I'm humbling myself, and I'm asking, I'm saying, if you are showing me grace, if you see me in that way, if you see me in the grace of God, in in, in your love, and I, if I've found favor, and of course we find favor in Jesus Christ, if we have found favor, if we're regarded with favor, means we're humbling ourselves before the throne of God. We're recognizing the only reason we can come before the throne of God is because of the grace of God. You have no right to be there otherwise. You have no standing in the throne of heaven or before the throne of heaven. You have no standing apart from Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm saying if... It pleases the king in prayer. I'm saying, I'm surrendered to your will, but I'm also saying, if you regard me with favor or grace, humbling myself, recognizing that it's only because of God's grace that I can stand before him. Third conditional, if he thinks it is the right thing to do. If he thinks it is the right thing to do. When you pray, when you really, really want something, do you end it with, nevertheless, your will be done? Do you you stop and say, you know, if, this, if you think this is the right thing to do, that's how Esther approached the king. That's how we approach God. Is it the right thing? Because if it's not the right thing, I don't want it in my life. This is submission. And it's, and it's one thing to submit before God or surrender your will to God. It's another thing to submit to the result of your prayer. So you, you ask God to do something and he doesn't do it. Well, apparently he didn't think it was the right thing to do or the right time to do it. A lot of people pray, and when they don't receive what they've asked for from God, they get angry. Or their faith fails, or they start to think, well, God didn't hear my prayer. Not Esther. She says in this third conditional, if he thinks it is the right thing to do. So it's an understanding that God is supreme. We submit ourselves to him. 
These conditionals are very telling, and they really reveal to us how we should approach the throne of grace. Finally, if he is pleased with me. If he is pleased with me. Now, clearly, we can never be holy enough or righteous enough to please God apart from Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that. But Esther's asking the question. She's she's looking at the conditional. She's saying, if he's pleased with me, this has everything to do with obedience. Are you obeying God? Do do your actions please God? Is your life pleasing to God? I didn't say perfect. I said, is your life pleasing to God? Because what she's doing and what we need to do is surrender our will, humble ourselves, submit ourselves, and obey him. And that is the right heart to have when you approach the throne of grace. And it's pretty much summed up in humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. This is what the scripture teaches us. And what Esther acts out in these conditional statements is a breakdown of the attitude of our hearts and our spirits and what it should be when we approach God and ask for anything for ourselves or for someone else. Amen? See the heart. I know this is Esther appearing before Xerxes, but her heart reveals to us what our heart should be. And just in case you're wondering, Jesus the Son had the same heart when crying out to his Father as a man, the God-man, but as a man. He always surrendered his will to his Father. He always humbled himself before the Father. He always submitted himself to the Father, and he always obeyed the Father. So is it too much to ask that we seek to be Christ-like in this way and approach the throne of grace the way that the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, approached the throne of grace. I think we've got our marching orders. I think we understand exactly what our heart needs to be. We are invited into the throne, into the throne of God and the throne room of God, but, of course, there are conditions. And we need to understand our place before his throne. Well, her request of Xerxes was on behalf of her people and her family. It wasn't even for her. And I've shared this before. I think so much of our prayer is selfish. Well, James seemed to think so. He said, you ask and you don't have. Or you have not because you ask not, right? But you ask and you have not because you ask amiss, that you might consume it upon your lusts. It's all about you. That's a modern way of saying it. You ask, but what you're asking for, it's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God at all. Because it's selfish. So the name it and claim it philosophy, if you will, was selfish. And you might say, well, but Pastor Tim, I know people that did and they got it. Well, I'm just going to say, if God was gracious and gave to someone a blessing, even though uh, they, they asked for it in the wrong way, that, that's, he'll show mercy to whoever he'll show mercy to. I'm, it's not up for me to, to make that argument one way or the other. But there's a lot of people that have asked for a lot of things and have gotten them and they've destroyed their lives. And I suspect that it wasn't God who gave it to them. I think about the people that have fame and fortune. Does that story ever end well? It always seems to end in disaster. We were talking about this on Sunday. I was hanging out with some friends, and we were talking about this, and we realized, you know, you have these people. I was thinking about John Lennon in particular, but... People who, it seems like, almost like they've cut a deal. 
with the devil, right? They get everything they want, but it doesn't end well. Why is that? I do believe there are some people that they give their heart to evil, and Satan gives them everything they want, and it ultimately destroys them. So that's why when we approach God's throne, we need to pray according to his will. Because you don't want what God doesn't want you to have. Amen? We've learned a lot about prayer in this book. If we look at the symbols, the types, and the symbolism. So Xerxes gave Esther and Mordecai the authority to issue an order to overrule the edict to destroy the Jews. They can do it. Now what are they going to do? They have to be clever because they can't revoke the first edict. They have to overrule it. And by the way, I remember I was at a pastor's conference many years ago up in uh, upstate New York. And uh, Gail Irwin was speaking. And uh, it was at a camp. It was a very uncomfortable camp. We were sitting on benches. You ever sit on a bench for three days in the cold? Um, It was so nice and warm. It was like around Memorial Day. And we went up there and it dropped 30 degrees. And I had to buy a jacket. I didn't even bring one. And just sat there, and I remember, though, you know, though I was uncomfortable, God really spoke to me at that time. And one of the things I'll never forget, Gail said, you know, when certain people pray, you get nervous. I said, well, what's this all about? He's talking about, like, people who really know how to pray. And he was talking about an experience he had had, and he said, you know, I was praying with somebody, and they prayed like this, Lord, rule or overrule? You don't know what's going to happen when you pray like that. I mean, you're leaving everything up to God. Rule or overrule in this situation. In other words, Lord, you do what you think is best. That's a little scary. Because we have no control at that point. Well, we never really do have control. But we we give up our control and we say, rule or overrule basically means, God, do whatever you want to do. That's a scary prayer for some people. It was for me at that time, for sure. But here's the thing. It's, It's... They need to overrule. They need to overrule the edict. And they're going to need wisdom. And we know that Xerxes had already given Haman's estate to Esther. They they hanged Haman on the gallows. That's taken care of. But Mordecai had already been given this full authority to issue edicts in the name of King Xerxes. So he has the power. But he needs to exercise that power according to the will of the king. And... He needs to do it in a way that doesn't break the law. We'll come back to that theme, because that's a reoccurring theme in the scriptures. Mordecai was commanded to issue another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews. The king told him to do this. He gave him the authority. Write the decree. Seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember, documents written in the king's name and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. So he can't revoke the previous edict. This decree that he issues would be unchangeable again because... Medo-Persian law cannot be repealed. So this is, he has to thread the needle. This edict has to be careful. It can't undo the law, but it has to fulfill and overrule the law. Medo-Persian kings were bound by the law. They were not above the law. Daniel told us that in Daniel 6. So that sets the stage for what comes next. And I want to read the whole section. There's a lot here. Verses 9 through 17. In this, Mordecai does issue an edict that grants the Jews throughout Persia the right to protect themselves. That's all he can do. He can't stop the enemies uh, that have been given the right to attack the Jews, but he can give protection to the Jews against their enemies. 
So we'll see in verse 9, in chapter 8, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, which is in northern Africa. That's the whole Persian Empire. And these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Notice they're not given the right to attack, just to defend. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. So this is a clever way to respond to that edict of death. It's an edict of salvation. It doesn't undo death, but it saves them from death. He published his edict to protect the Jews throughout Persia on the 23rd of the third month, and it wouldn't be until the month of Adar, what did I say, the uh, 12th month? So they've got some time. But he sends his edict out to the Jews, to all the nobles, all the officials, so that everyone understands. And he had the royal secretaries write his orders in the scripts and languages of all the people so that everyone could read it and understand. And he didn't write in his own name because he had the signet ring. He wrote in the name of King Xerxes and he sealed the decree with the king's signet ring. This is law now. And he used those mounted couriers that we talked about a couple weeks ago, which rapidly delivered his dispatches to all the king's provinces. Some of you weren't there. I'll mention it again. You know, the couriers, uh, we find out here, they rode fast horses, especially bred for rapidly delivering the king's decrees. The Persians were well known for their postal service, for their ever-efficient courier service, and they did a great job of delivering the mail. I've said this before. I'm not so sure that our country does such a great job of delivering the mail. (laughs) In fact, it was a couple of months ago, I had a a check sent out to one of the ministries we support, and it never showed up. It just disappeared into the void. And uh, one of the reasons I started following my taxes online is because the post office uh, shredded our tax return. We got pieces of it in, like, Ziploc bags, and then I had to get LifeLock because clearly everyone saw all of our personal information, anyone that saw it. So I wasn't real happy with the post office. But this post office, this postal service was great. World renowned. In fact, the inscription on the New York City post office, well, it used to be the post office, translated from the works of Herodotus reads, Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That original sentence 
according to the Postal Service, referenced the expedition of the Greeks against the Persians around 500 BC, and it remarked specifically on the dedication with which the Persians continued their system of mounted postal couriers during that time. So that's where that comes from. So yeah, they had a great postal service. But what happened here is Mordecai granted the Jews the right to destroy anyone that might attack them or their families. He also granted the Jews the right to seize the personal property of their enemies. So many people wouldn't have attacked them anyway at this point. I'm surprised that any did, but some did, as we'll see. And the Jews were to destroy and plunder their enemies on the 13th of the 12th month of Adar, but only their enemies, only those that came after them. They're not allowed to attack innocent people. That, they didn't want that anyway. But think about it. Haman's edict did that exact thing. He, he gave people the right to attack innocent people. All that Mordecai has done is give them the right to defend themselves against their enemies. So you see how it overrules the edict, but it doesn't change the edict? If anything, it exposes the enemies of the Jews, brings them out of the darkness into the light. Very interesting. So, the Jews were to destroy and plunder their enemies, and he issued this text, the text of the edict as law throughout Persia, just to prepare the Jews for the day that would be there in a few months. They would avenge themselves on their enemies that were preparing to destroy and plunder them. And the edict was issued in every province and in the citadel of Susa, the capital. Then we get to verse 15. We read, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor, In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews, because fear of the Jews had seized them. So things have certainly turned around, haven't they? They have. Salvation has come to the Jews. There was a death sentence. The law condemned them to death, but salvation has come to the Jews. That theme really brings us to the end of our study. But notice that he was dressed, that is, Mordecai was dressed as the prime minister of Persia, second in rank to Xerxes. And so the Jews in Susa and throughout Persia, they celebrate the promotion of Mordecai and the king's edict that brings them salvation. And it's really kind of surprising that many of the Gentiles became Jews. That is, they sided with the Jews. They weren't interested in being the the enemy of the Jews. They became Jews because they respected Judaism and they feared their vengeance if they didn't. But as we look at this account, I mean, that's all very interesting history. We've gained a lot of understanding about the culture, but chapter 8 is also a prophetic picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you've started to see these themes already. I've kind of hinted at them, mentioned them in passing. But I want to break it down for you as we are now familiar with chapter 8. Each character in some way represents specific aspects of the gospel message. They're symbols, they're types, they're themes. For example, Esther. Esther is really a type of Jesus. Why? Jesus defeated the devil and established our relationship with God. That's what Jesus accomplished. What did Esther accomplish? Well, Esther Esther defeated Haman, who's a type of the devil. He's the bad guy. So Esther is kind of the hero. Jesus is our hero. 
It continues. I mean, Xerxes kind of represents the king in heaven, God. I mean, he gave Jesus, that is our heavenly father, the devil's authority over all mankind. See, the devil seems to think that he has authority. And he controls the world system, but the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. But you know, when, when Christ interceded on the cross for us, whatever authority over the world the devil was given was immediately seated and surrendered to the Son of God who became a man. The devil has no authority here. The devil has no authority in your life as a Christian. The devil has no authority in this world over you. Oh, he can harass you. We were talking about it on Sunday. But wait a minute, wait a minute. He can take those who do not belong to Jesus captive at his will, to do his will, but not you. You and I, well, we have been given to God. We've given our hearts to God. We're under God's authority. Now, of course, Haman is the bad guy, so he represents the devil who was clearly defeated by Jesus on the cross. So these symbols, you have an intercessor, you know, inter- one interceding, that's Esther. You, you have a a king, you, you have a bad guy, you, know, you have all these same symbols that we have in terms of the gospel message. But Mordecai, what about Mordecai? Well, what's interesting about Mordecai is some suggest he represents God's people, the church, who was welcomed in to the presence of the king and given authority. You see, here's the truth. Uh, Mordecai was welcomed into Xerxes' presence and given the authority of the king. Well, we, as the church of God, of Jesus Christ, have been welcomed, as we've been talking about, welcomed into God's presence in the person of Jesus Christ and given the authority of God in the person of Jesus Christ, which, again, we've talked about this evening. It's conditional, but yes, we have that authority in Jesus Christ, like Mordecai did. And it's interesting because Haman had an estate, didn't he? The vast wealth, his estate, but you know, that, that really is the type of the spiritual authority that was given to Jesus through his redemption. Everything that Haman had, that is the devil, it belongs to our God and, our, and his Christ, our heavenly intercessor. The world, the, all that is in the world, everything, mankind itself, redeemed to God. So whatever the devil had, it's, it, it's gone. He was defeated on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. So these symbols are interesting. Now listen, I'm not saying that that's what the story is about, the account of God's word. I'm saying the themes of this chapter point to the themes of the gospel. That's all I'm saying. Don't get carried away. It's just interesting, these themes of redemption, these themes of intercession and deliverance and salvation. Oh, it continues. gets better. The signet ring, which we talked about, it represents the spiritual authority given to the church through Jesus Christ. The power of God. He's given it to us. He gave it to Mordecai. He's given it to us. Conditionally, yes, according to God's will. We have the authority of Jesus Christ to cast out demons, to heal and do whatever he has called us to do in his name. Not according to our will, but his. But the spiritual authority has been given to us. Whatever authority the devil had, it is ours as the bride of Christ. Now, there were two edicts. Do you remember? There was Haman's edict, which brought death. 
And there was Mordecai's edict, which brought life and salvation. And I think what you see here is sort of representative of the old and the new covenants. Haman's old edict brought death by the law, which could not be nullified by any new edict. It couldn't be undone or revoked. It had to be overruled. It had to be fulfilled. But Mordecai's new edict brought life and joy by grace, and it satisfied the old edict. It didn't undo it. So many people think the new covenant, the New Testament, sort of revokes the old covenant. No, it fulfills it. It overrules it. But it doesn't do away with the law. Christ fulfilled the law and gave us life. So Mordecai's new edict provided God's people Israel with the choice to be saved. And the new covenant in Jesus Christ gives us, it provides us, God's people, with a choice to be saved. And how are we protected? We're protected in Christ. All of these pictures, all of these signs and symbols, just, they, they just point to the truth of the gospel. Oh, how about the couriers? These couriers, you know, they have to go out there and they bring the message to the message of salvation to everyone. Well, I think you can see in that the king's couriers represent the messengers of the gospel. That's what we are. We're like those couriers, hopefully better than our postal service, by the way, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, to anyone who will receive it. Without the message, there would be no faith in salvation and no joy. Without faith, there would be no choice to be saved. And without the choice, they would die at the hands of their enemies. They need to know there is a new edict. There is a new covenant made in the blood of Jesus Christ that overrules the law of sin and death. And by the way, we'll end with this. You've heard me talk a lot about garments in their study on Sundays in the book of Revelation. Mordecai's new garments, well, we know this. Garments in the scripture, they talk about righteousness. And these were garments that Mordecai didn't earn or purchase. They were given to him by the king. Each of us in Christ have been given new garments. Christ's righteousness given to us. It talks about our righteous position in Christ. Our righteousness is, as Isaiah says, as filthy rags, but we, like Mordecai, are being dressed in royal robes. We see in the book of Revelation, fine linen, clean and white, is given to the saints. Given. Given to the saints. I hope in this wonderful chapter, you've not only just seen what happened with Mordecai and Esther and Xerxes and Haman, but you've actually seen that behind this story, there's a symbol of the true story of salvation. And some say, well, do you think that was intentional? Well, I don't know. I just know this, that God's word always points to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's figurative. In this case, it might be an analogy. But it's interesting that all those symbols and themes that we just talked about point to Jesus. If you just look for him, you'll find him. He said to his detractors, to those that criticized him, he says, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which testify of me. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Oh, we love when your word points us to your son, Jesus Christ. For in him we have salvation. And yes, we've also looked at what's required in our hearts to appear before your throne of grace. And Lord, I pray that these lessons that are hidden in the text, that they would truly just be revealed to our hearts 
that we would learn what our heart needs to be as we approach you in our time of need, but that also we would remember that the only reason we can approach you in our time of need is because of what you have done by sending your son to die in our place on the cross, who rose again and ascended into heaven, ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, like Esther made it before the king. He makes intercession on our behalf. And because of that intercession, we have newness of life and the promise of your coming again. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so rich. It's so full. It's so filled with symbolism and encouragement. Help us to remember these things this week and always, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.